setting a record for kicking your own ass for a week is different than setting a record for kicking your own ass for a year. Yeah. The commitment that's involved in that. I mean, how many times did you almost just say, fuck it? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there were many times where I was like very unhappy. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. This is Wintry Mix number 56. I'm Alex Kaufman. The flurry of new episodes continues as part of my relaunch into a Mad River Valley to Stowe locally focused podcast. What does that mean? It means the interview with Stowe's Karen Keene is in the feed right now in front of this one, and it means that going forward, this puppy is going to be all about locals and visitors, skiing and not skiing. Whomever cares to come by my humble Waterbury Center studio and get into it. Maybe that's you. Listeners can always reach me via email at alex at wintrymixcast.com or you can leave some thoughts on the pod voicemail at 802-560-5003. Waterbury resident Aaron Rice is our guest for episode 56. That name might be familiar to some of you. He did that thing. What was that thing? He decided to, then somehow accomplished, the goal of skiing 2.5 million vertical feet in a calendar year without taking any chairlifts. It required a level of mental and physical fortitude I will never have. We'll look back and look forward with UVM grad turned ski bum turned accidental endurance athlete Aaron Rice. Stay with us. These first few episodes of the new format are brought to you by me. Just me. No sponsors. I wanted to get the new vibe figured out first. But very soon, there will be a really rad local restaurant group, brewery, and or retailer highlighted right here. We'll see who steps up. Let's get back to the pot. Way. Alex Kaufman back with you. Aaron Rice here in my humble studio with blankets behind you trying to make the sound not terrible. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. You've been busy on the grand scale and I think on the local scale as well. You're now a Waterbury resident. Yes. For how long? Almost a year and a half. Vermont Roots or Vermont Roots since college? Vermont Roots since college, yep. Grew up in Massachusetts. Visited often or not so much? Uh, a little bit growing up, but never in northern Vermont, mostly southern Vermont. But once I came here for college, it was all over. You are on the pod for a few reasons. We tried to talk to you 
I don't know, four years ago before you did your quote unquote thing, which we'll obviously talk a lot about. Yeah. And then you went out West and I was still in the East, much harder to do that. And lots of folks telling your story really well. There's a great film, um, number of podcasts and interviews and magazines and all sorts of cool stuff. But now you live right down the street from me, which is works well for my new podcast, which is trying to kind of be global and local at the same time. Yeah. So after all of your travels, you picked Waterbury. Why? <laughs> I knew I wanted to come back to Vermont. It's great here. The, there's all the activities I want to do, and there's an amazing community. Uh, so when I was coming back, I was kind of looking where could I be close enough that I could find a job and not have a horrible commute, but also be in the mountains. And it just so happened that a good friend of mine from college and high school and elementary school had just bought a house in Waterbury. And I had a whole bunch of friends from college that were already living here. So I rented a room from him. It was pretty easy. The time between college and returning to Vermont was about how long? Five years. Yeah, I spent, I'd spent a couple summers in Vermont in there, uh, in Stowe, and kind of kept my roots here a little bit. Um, but yeah, five years between. And you're back just kind of working man grind, right? What, what are you doing right now? Pretty much. Yeah. I have essentially a desk job. I travel a little bit for work. Um, but yeah, I'm doing environmental science work. And when you were at UVM, um, skiing is become a big part of your life now. Was it then? Yeah. Yeah. Skiing. Uh, when I was growing up, it was like a family vacation a year and it was like the best week of my life every year. And then in high school, I started racing um, for the varsity team. And that's when I like really started every weekend. I was going up with friends once we could drive and up to Vermont or New Hampshire. Um, and then when I got to UVM, I just took it and ran, started backcountry and just started going 100 days a season. The racing piece, were you Alpine or Nordic or? Yeah, Alpine racing. Um, I've never Nordic skied. I've Nordic skied like twice in my yeah. life. Yeah, I was. I came from a racing background and then very quickly realized racing's great, but free skiing's better. So you weren't on the Nordic side, which is more considered the endurance athlete side. You were on the racing side, the Alpine side, probably riding a lot of chairlifts. At some point in your life, you decided uphill skiing was for you. What was that moment? I don't know the exact moment. I certainly, when I started doing it in college, I fell in love with it very, very quickly. Uh, just doing it in the Bolton backcountry and back of snow and J, Big J. Um, and I think I didn't really know, like, I was all in on backcountry and done with lifts until like my second year in Alta, maybe. Um, when you're skiing with 8,000 other people on the best powder day ever and you're not having a good time because it's tracked out and you're looking across the valley and you're just thinking, I could just walk. and You see 14 people over there yeah. and they're getting everything they want. Yeah. So there were like three or four days in Alta that year where I was just like, what am I doing trying to ski the resort today? And I just went backcountry and pretty much never ski the resort unless it was like spring skiing, party ski. So Massachusetts, UVM, get into skiing more seriously in college because you're at UVM and a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. And then boom, out to Salt Lake City, Alta, Little Cottonwood Canyon, year or two of that, and then kind of a, a light switch goes off. And then pretty quickly, you put this goal in front of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people, including Greg Hill, the previous record holder, were a little like surprised how quickly I decided to do it after I'd only been backcountry skiing five, six years at that time, um, and really only two years, three years. How do you describe 
what you attempted and what you achieved when you're at a party with people in your family or things like that who don't ski at all? How do you describe it to a room full of people who are like doctors? Yeah, it's real hard um, (laughs) to get across kind of the amount of commitment that it took. I usually say I skied the most anybody's ever skied in a year. And then that I like let that sink in and I say without lifts. <laughs> and then they it's like two Yeah, it's a two stage. Because <laughs> they don't even understand it really, like what it would mean to ski without lifts, but And probably some of them are just confused. They yeah. just they can't even get past that without lifts part. They're like, What do you mean? Right. Are you walking? Are you right. r- riding a helicopter, probably? They're wondering. So then the next thing is you explain what human powered means and right. then there's like three or four questions like, oh like what if, did you take snowmobiles? Like, no, no, like human powered, just human powered. Um, Drive car to parking lot, then become human powered. So I always, I always counted the up because right. there are a couple days where you like drive to the parking lot and then you ski up and you end like lower. Oh, right. And that vertical would not count below the car, below the, below the starting point. Yeah. Like say you like thumb to ride back to the car at the end of the day or yeah. something. That doesn't count. You must be a numbers guy to decide to go for that amount and then track that amount. I was trying to do some math here and just to make it more local, I knew that there was a, a figure around how many times up and down Mount Everest it, it equals. Which is like, everybody loves it. I hate it. Well, so the one I prefer, the one I came up with was how many times you'd have to hike the forerunner lift line at Stowe. And it was like 1,250, if you call that 2,000 vertical feet. So it's like just hiking national top to bottom 1,250 times in 365 days, but you didn't ski every single day. So it's like in 333 days. So it's like three and a half to almost four times a day hiking up and down Stowe that many times per day. This is great. I usually have to explain this to people. Well, I did a little bit of my trying to make it more local. And I was just like, and that's what I always say. I couldn't do that one time. Yeah. Like do it four times in a day. One time I could do it twice. I think. Yeah. I've never really had good equipment. I've just always been skinning with like secondhand whatever that's heavy and weird. So I assume you didn't haul excess weight up the mountain. Oh, I hauled excess weight. Really? Oh, yeah. Because, well, I mean, I had nice equipment. I always had like nice DPS skis, but I didn't shy away from the Lotus 124 on a powder day. Um, I would bring that right up with a pair of marker kingpins on it. You wanted to make sure the down was still fun. I mean, not only did I want to make sure it was fun, it was like I wasn't going to do it if it wasn't. That was the only reason I was doing it is for the down. So you hadn't really, had you done a lot of training other than just doing the activity prior to starting? Never in my life have I done a lot of training other than just doing the activity. There's a segment in the film, this is like the real inside scoop. There's a segment in the film where I'm running up Mount Mansfield yeah. to train, uh, in quotes. You yeah. took the gondola? No, no. I, I ran up Mount Mansfield, but the film makes it look like I was doing that every day. That was the only time I ran up Mount Mansfield that year. It was good B-roll. It was awesome footage. It was beautiful. It was it was fun. I liked it. But, I mean, no, I was biking that summer because biking is way more fun than running. Um, and then as soon as it started snowing, I was skinning 8,000 feet on six inches of snow at Mansfield. So you just went into it with a mental commitment more than a physical preparation. Way more. And that's what it is. I mean, I'm like... Like you were saying before the interview, like I fell into becoming an endurance athlete. Like I, I'm a skier. I love skiing. I ends up, I can go kind of far, but there's like, I know 
dozens and dozens of people that are way better athletes than me that could absolutely crush this record if right. they wanted to. Your preference for powder snow, yeah, like a year later, led you to doing this. Totally, <laughs> totally. Awesome. And I mean, I skied more powder that year than like I'll ever ski in my life, probably. So the things that people get in their mind is that you're traveling all over the place and you're getting all these new areas. No, you had to basically just lap certain areas, correct? Um, Yeah, lap like the central Wasatch. Right, yeah, okay. I knew that area so well that I could, like, given the avalanche conditions of the day right. and the snow, I could put together an amazing 10,000-foot day every day. Um, So people often ask, like, oh, did you just ski the same thing over and over? And, like, no, I never skied, like... Except for there was one day the danger was actually extreme. Like the rose was black and I just went up a cat track 13 times, 700 feet. It was horrible. The snow was upside down. I was straight lining the whole way down. It was not a fun day. Yeah. But you didn't have that many of those. No, it was like maybe 30 days were like what I would describe as like not good skiing. 10%. I mean, that's, that's not bad. You start off in January. So you're skiing in the winter. You're skiing in the spring, summer, fall. Even though there's a million, there's a great, we should just tell everybody to go watch the movie. Totally. Obviously made by T-Bar Films, Tyler Ray, but the name of the movie is? Uh, 2.5 million. 2.5 million, aptly titled. They should watch the movie. To boil it down, you started January 1st in Utah and then take it through the calendar really quick. Yeah. So January 1st in Utah, I really started like a month prior and just kind of, that was my training, if you want to call it that. I was just skiing every day and it was an amazing December. It was like the best month of skiing I've ever experienced. January, ski for a month or like six weeks, break my hand, basically keep skiing, doesn't really slow me down too, too much. Then uh, come like April, I left Little Combo Canyon, skied the LaSalle in southern Utah. Those are the ones you can see from Moab, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever seen Westworld, it's those uh, mountains. Okay. Uh, I was like watching Westworld and then all of a sudden I was like, wait, I've, I've skied those mountains. <laughs> this, this world isn't supposed to exist. Yeah. And then came up through the San Juans, up into Colorado, spent June in Colorado, hardest month. By far, all the snow melted. It was horrible. Yeah, let me stop you there. I was curious. So were you counting, I assume you must have been, I would have been if I was, oh my God. Um, at some point, you're obviously having to go up a lot, but you're not skinning. You're just hiking. That counts, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I talked to, and well, so I, I didn't know. And I basically just called Greg Hill. Um, and so there's kind of the world of FKTs, fastest known times, yeah. has all these ethics. And one of the ethics is that you do it to the same standard that the person did it prior to you. Yes. Or you can up the standard if you would like. And Greg Hill, prior record holder, did it 2 million in a calendar year. He did. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and so I called him and was like, hey, what did you... I asked him a whole bunch of questions. One of them was like, what did you do for like hiking in for an approach when you're walking in, walking out? And he was like, it was about the skiing. If I was going in to ski, I counted it. Obviously, I wasn't like doing silly stuff like hiking up a mountain and then not skiing. Yeah, so if you're if you're starting in Breck and you're having to hike up 1,800 feet to get to snow, totally. that counts. So that's June, and from what I've been able to gather is that was that was the low point for Brutal. you mentally, Brutal. physically, probably everything. Everything. Yeah. Are you living in a car in Breck? What's your living situation? Uh, I lived in a van for a couple of weeks, and then for all of June, I lived with a buddy mm. um, who had an extra couch. Yeah, it was just, everything was kind of shitty. The skiing was shitty. Um, some days were fine, but like, it wasn't good enough to get people out. So I was solo all the time. Right. Um, and I still really wanted to like, keep up with my goal. So I was still skiing 6,000 feet a day. 
you just unpleasant up and down. Yeah, just like the up was like walking up scree and the down was like foot deep sun cups. Yeah. It's like awesome. The sunset was great. You're just trying to not get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I skied my race skis almost the whole time because like it doesn't matter. They're light. I'm not going to have fun anyways. <laughs> but then I went to Argentina and it all. And then, yeah, you chased the snow to Southern Hemisphere. Argentina, Argentina, or Argentina, Chile, both? Yeah, I was in Argentina for three months, uh, and then kind of winter ends there, and I rented a van and went to Chile for almost a month and drove around in a van and skied the volcanoes down there. Ease of stacking vert in that area compared to Little Cottonwood, easier or harder? I mean, I don't think anywhere is easier than Little Cottonwood, um, and that's partly a function of the the terrain, partly a function of the people, partly a function of the snow and the avalanche forecast center. I mean, everything there just makes it easy. And there's always partners and right. there's always a skin track. Um, so it's it's just easy there. And I knew that going into it. So I kind of, January, um, I averaged 10,000 feet a day. Yeah, decent head start. Yeah. So, yeah. and the whole season, I just... You needed that head start. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's no way I could have like averaged... 7,300 every day. Because you were banging like 10,000 that first month. Yeah, yeah. First month was literally was 300,000. It was over 10,000 oh a day. At that at that moment, did you think it was like, well, this going to be easy? No. What was I, your thought? I knew I wasn't going to be able to sustain that, but I was super, super excited because I, I'm like almost just as proud of that as I am of the whole thing because in terms of like the physical achievement, because that was only 3,000 feet away from the record of a month. And I proceeded to do 11 months after that. So, Argentina, do you speak the language? Very little. I can talk about skiing. Did that matter? <laughs> no. I know enough to get around. And once you're in the mountains, you just ski. So yeah. it wasn't like I was hanging out in town all the time. And you basically just set yourself a budget for 12 months because you didn't work. Yeah. You just had to milk it. Yeah. You had to, to feed your body and try to not get hurt. You hurt your hand, but you got through it. Try not get sick. Yep. Um, try to not get jury duty. Yep. Were you receiving mail? Like, where were your? <laughs> I mean, I like I had cut everything out of my life. Right. It's like you went to went to the moon or hiked the Appalachian Trail or something. Yeah. Yeah. I just had no. I I did a really good job getting rid of any and all responsibility that I had, um, which is a double edged sword. I mean, it, it responsibility can be very fulfilling, and there's a reason people like it. The things that come with it, and yeah, I just. If like you, you said jury duty, that didn't even occur to me. I don't know how they would have found me. I probably got jury duty and still don't know. Like, where was your mail going and who was opening it? I didn't have mail. You had no mail. I had no mail. You just just like you have email. And that's it. I had email, yeah. yeah, and all my sponsors and everything. I'd keep in touch with via email, and the couple times like I needed something in the mail, I'd send it to my mom's house or I'd send it to the lodge. How'd you do your taxes that year? Um, just skip it. Did I do my taxes? <laughs> That's awesome. I don't think I probably didn't do my because I didn't have any. Right, but it would have been in the prior year. You know what I mean? Like, well, it is the prior year. I, I'm sure I did my taxes. First part of the year, you would have been doing your taxes for the prior year. I definitely did them. I definitely did them. What's the statute of limitations? I don't, well, you could have got ex- you can get an extension. I definitely did my taxes. But once you, when you weren't skiing, you had to be solely focused on like making sure you could ski tomorrow. Totally. I mean, I, I didn't. I did nothing that wasn't related to skiing during that year it was yeah. like you get home and it took me an hour to eat five thousand calories dinner was five thousand total was about seven it takes a long time to eat that much it's horrible you're in south america until about what month uh so i was there till the end of october and you're getting seven thousand eight thousand a day no less than that like oh. like averaging like five thousand five thousand okay. five hundred um because i had set myself up with a big buffer and i 
I gave myself pretty steep goals for the last two months once I was back. It must have been fun. It must have been like enjoyable skiing yeah. comparatively. I That was like my best recovery time was yeah. down there because I just wasn't skiing as much. I actually had really consistent partners for almost the whole time. Chile, a little less so, uh, but Argentina always had partners. Uh, stayed at Refugio Frey, which is like the most incredible place on earth. The Sundog DPS cinematic film. Mm-hmm. Six minute, five minute film takes place there. It's just like. I saw a picture of the hut. Yeah. It's just like absolutely mind blowing, and the skiing is so good, and the avalanche danger is low because it's maritime, and like, it's like Hojo's, but in a much cooler place. Yeah, it's like Hojo's if it was stable all the time. Yeah. So you're back in the fall. Do you find snow in October in the states? How do you how do you keep it going? So I got back like November first or something, December or November first, November second, and. Uh, I like usually Colorado's getting snow. I mean, they just got what, like a foot of snow. Right. Utah got a foot of snow. So I was like, October, like should have snow. Right, November, just needs to be good enough. Be yeah, like I'll just lap some nothing. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, so I used to live in Boulder and November skiing, I'd stay till like November, December. And then I go to Utah and November is like the best skiing in Colorado, in my opinion. It's like, it's surprisingly good. There's not a lot of it, but like, if you know where to go, you know where the wind fills in. It's beautiful. It's just like, it's, it's great. So I was really excited for that. I get there and it's like bone dry. So it snows like a dusting and I go up and I ski where I think there's going to be snow and I'm literally skiing last year's snow. And where is that? Like St. Mary's? Like where are you going? Uh, Jones Pass. And it didn't work? I had like everything from go back to Argentina (laughs) because there's still plenty of snow or to Chile, there's plenty of snow there to go up to Canada where they had a little bit of snow, but it like still was pretty shitty. The best option was the pack northwest so like shasta had just gotten like a six foot snowstorm and uh bachelor had a bunch of snow so yeah. i went out to bend had some friends there and camped in the parking lot for like a week um but i had just spent like six days traveling and not skiing and sitting and i got to bend and i did like a ten thousand foot day and pulled my groin mm. and basically just like milked it for like a week just like trying to ski as little as I could. I'd like ski right until it started hurting and then call it. Did you end up having to do any of just resort laps? Like when you just needed vert? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just, I mean, Bachelor hadn't opened for the season. Right. So I was just running up and down Bachelor. Yeah. Um, it was awesome. I mean, it was like kind of drizzly a couple of days, like, but super long laps, great for vert, nice mellow pitch. Yeah. Um, and I could, I summed it like every day and then. And I, I had bigger plans. I was going to go to like the South Sisters or the, the Three Sisters. and um, But with my... With your groin. And you're not going to stack vert doing explorations. Yeah. So yeah. I did the last day in Bend. I did do South Sister. And it was sweet. Um, and we skied like almost to the car, which was crazy. Um, and then I went down to Shasta, skied like probably the best powder that got skied there that year. Like it was crazy. It snowed all the way to the valley floor. I was skiing like three feet of pow through old growth trees. It's like <laughs> wow. not what you expect at Mount Shasta. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> um, it was like blow, absolutely blower snow too. It was so sweet. So that's November, December back yeah. to Salt Lake City and finish it up. Yeah. So Thanksgiving, I bought a ticket back to, to Utah and like there was, it was like rock and it had just snowed like three feet and i was like i think it's it's on it just didn't stop snowing it was like the best december on record it was amazing that's not true but it was really good i'm looking at your feet they'd seem normal but i assume that like any human's feet would go through some hell during this how are your feet now how were they then yeah i'm pretty amazingly okay i mean i i did lots of things to make sure they stayed okay like 
always made sure my boots dried out every single night, even when I was living in my van. Um, yeah, that becomes religion. Yeah, you just you have to. Yeah. And I had a couple pairs of liners that I could use. Also, I worked with um, the Sport Loft in Utah. I mean, you just have to be proactive. And anytime you feel something, you just like get that spot blown out. January, I thought I wasn't going to be able to finish because my feet were in such bad shape. So what do you eat? You must have an amazing diet. That's got to be the, the, the thing here. This is how you did it. Your, your secret sauce is whatever the heck you eat. I don't know. In the winter, I'm vegetarian. I've been vegetarian my whole life pretty yeah. much. I think one of the only things I would change if I did it again is I'd do it vegan. Um, I think it'd be easier. doing Easier? Yeah, e- easier doing it fully plant-based. It's just like you have a much more even energy and... I, I get like sluggish when I eat dairy and such a poster child for the, if you put your mind to it, you yeah. can do anything. <laughs> um, because you, you didn't change very much with like your no. lifestyle or your training. You ate more of your current diet. You skied a bit more than you had been prior and stopped doing other things. Yeah. Um, and you made sure that you didn't have to open your mail. Right. <laughs> yeah. You set yourself a goal that I think a lot of humans myself included, would have a hard time pushing through on because of its length. It's the duration. Setting a record for kicking your own ass for a week is different than setting a record for kicking your own ass for a year. Yeah. The commitment that's involved in that. I mean, how many times did you almost just say, fuck it? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there were many times where I was like very unhappy, but there were no times that I actually almost quit. Every time you got them, you just you just kind of waited a day or waited an hour. and Yeah, I got super sad. I got like really homesick a couple times. And homesick's not even the right word. Just like like lonely and feeling like I wanted a home. I mean, I felt this way a long time ago when I was living in my car. You just kind of like, you wish you had a more regular routine. Your routine is just so jacked. You feel like you live on the moon. Yeah, yep. Totally. Yeah, when you're, I mean, you need to like find a place to sleep every night. <laughs> it's like... It's hard. Are you listening to music or podcasts? What's in your ears during most of this? Uh, if I was skiing with people, I wouldn't listen to anything. Right. Um, when I was not, I had Jaybird headphones, Bluetooth, um, dropping the sponsor name. And nice. um, they're great. Yeah, they just listened to tons and tons of podcasts for a while. Like, I didn't really talk to many people except for my skiing partner. So right. it was like, I could talk about skiing, or if I was talking to somebody else, I could talk about podcasts. <laughs> like, didn't have much else to talk about. So, what are what what were the podcasts that that got you through oh, it? Oh man, I mean, all the like standard podcasts that everybody listens to, um, Radio Lab and This American Life and Reply All, great right. podcast. Yep. Um, pretty much anything Gimlet Media does is amazing, in my opinion. So you're based in Salt Lake City. You have the quick access to the to the Vert, um, which was key to getting this to work. Any other places on the globe where you think it might actually be doable? Mm-hmm. I think you can do it in um, BC, where Greg Hill lives, okay, like yeah. Revelstoke. Um, personally, I do really well with like 1,700 to 2,500 foot runs. Um, he was skiing 4,000 foot runs, so he would do one or two runs a day. Um, I like doing six runs a day. I just, the snow is more consistent. And your transitions are must be seamless by now. You must be the world's best transitioner. <laughs> I, I can transition pretty fast. Um, but but you also don't always have to transition super fast. Um, I mean, if you can get it down to two minutes, that's good enough for most most days. But I'm trying to think. So someone 
it would be poo-pooed. But, I mean, someone could just try to do this inbounds. 100%. Um, at a resort that has a good uphill policy. Yeah, their problem would not be the physical. Their problem would be the mental. I don't know how you could do that. Just bore yourself to death. There's not enough change. There's not enough interesting shit happening. The the most I skied was the deepest days, breaking trail. Like the hardest physically, I just kept going because the skiing was so good. My biggest day was like 14 something. And it was like a a huge powder day. I broke trail like half that day. You got to love skiing powder. Like if it wasn't for the love of skiing powder, there's just no way you'd slap this thing out in front of you. Yeah, no way. Um, Some guy out in Montana... Um, Mike Foot just set the day record. It was like fifty-seven thousand feet in a day, and he just did like Christ. I think it was like sixty laps, like a groomed run. Um, <laughs> and I do think like so fifty thousand feet to do three million would only be sixty days. So I think if somebody wanted to do it, they would do something like that. Maybe it would be a hundred days of like fifty thousand or whatever, um, or like. 30,000, but you would just put in like a like a huge day twice a week. I have no desire to do that. How long did you think about it before you basically pulled the trigger and decided to do it? Uh, so the spring after my third year, I went down to the desert for a month and just kind of like hung out and tried to figure out what I was doing and climbed a little bit and visited a friend and biked a little bit and... Because you were doing the after-college ski bump thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I had kind of like, it had been three years, and I was like, I had told myself that the people that were in Alta for four years or more were all crazy, either in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> like, they were just going to like live the rest of their life there and be super happy, or they were alcoholics, and it wasn't a good thing. Um, and I knew I didn't want to live in Alta for the rest of my life. So I was like, you got to pick some direction. Like, it's year four. You can't just do this for the rest of your life. Cause you can, I mean, it's easy. Like they give you everything you need. You've gotten rid of all your responsibilities and you don't get mail anymore. <laughs> and like, yeah. you can just do it for the rest of your life and make it work in the summers. And I didn't want to do that. So I was like, gave myself a month. It was like, figure out what you're doing. And it was like, I could go to grad school. I could try to get a job. I could look into guide school. I could look There's into so avalanche options. forecasting or I could like go for this record thing that I've been thinking about. It's kind of like put an exclamation point on the end of ski bumming. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But then you moved here. You still get to, you, we're still going to be able to ski enough. When the skiing's good, I ski every day before work. If that's what it takes in the spring, maybe it's after work. So it's two or three hours as early as you can get out um, in a small radius around where we're sitting right now. Yeah. You know, the Green Mountain Ridge line, basically. Yeah. Um, sometimes the Worcester's. So on the topic of getting out around here, last year I recall reading something from the notch that you were at least in the vicinity of, correct? Uh, yeah, more than in the vicinity. We triggered a big slide. Wow. Yeah. What were the conditions at the time? So it would have been nice if we had known the conditions, but unfortunately we decided to take the lift up, and then we were up in the Alpine all morning getting to the run. Uh, so we really didn't know the conditions until we dropped in, which was like obviously not the way to do it. Um, hindsight's 2020 on a lot of factors that day, but it had just snowed three feet, maybe of pretty heavy snow on top of like rain crusts and who knows, totally ice block. Um, and it had only been like 24 hours. So it was, 
uh, still a soft enough interface that it was just able to clean out the whole top snowpack. And that risk is kind of always there where folks are taking lifts to get to these other areas because they don't come up them. They're yeah. not physically on them from below. So they, they, get, they get on top and they don't really know what's below them. Totally. And I mean, we, yeah, we didn't know the snow conditions below us at all. And um, I think I had turned my phone to airplane mode or something or was out of service. But when I got down afterwards, my buddy had actually texted me and he had been skiing the back balls at Smugs. And he was like, whoa, did you see all the activity out there today? And everything was avalanching. We skied the most aggressive line in Vermont on yeah. that day. So you didn't ski the line. You were just up on top and your activity sent it, sent it down. To give the whole timeline, we kind of, we started like first chair-ish, you know. I think there were four or five people ahead of us on the booter up um, up Hourglass, and we kept skins on, so we pretty quickly passed them. Got to the top, uh, ended up getting a little turned around. It was totally socked in. Um, a bunch of people passed us while we were turned around, and so we skied, tracked out lines off the top of Mansfield, and then we traversed all the way over to this line. And we get there, and we've been going for like two more hours than we wanted to. So we're all kind of tired, and there was a huge range of ability and experience in that group. Um, so there was just like a lot of factors at play. And uh, we basically dropped into the line and kind of went in a little aggressively. And then we like caught ourselves, did a slope cut, um, no reaction. But then my buddy took the first turn, and it kind of right over the roll. And the whole thing just fractured around him, and he was able to ski off it, which was really lucky. But then two of us had a good view looking down the the whole line, and this just huge powder cloud billowed up. Was there more action than average in the Knox last year, or just more newsworthy action? Because I remember the we had those Marines. Yeah, that was well. two days later. Right. Um, I don't. Yeah, National Guard. I think National Guard. Yeah. Yeah, and so ours was like our avalanche was on the local news and. Um, I posted about it and it got a ton of attention. Yeah. Um, and I guess they just missed all that and they were doing an avalanche training course and they were digging a pit right in the in the slide path. There's so much East Coast mentality of I'm not on Mount Washington, so I don't have to think about it. Totally. And I mean, I fell into that trap for sure. Yeah. And like what's so weird to me looking back at it is I knew I was an avalanche train and I was following avalanche protocol. Um, in terms of like having my buddy do slope cuts and I like dug a couple hand pits and I like did all that stuff because it's what you do in avalanche train. Um, didn't bring my beacon because I just skied 50 days in the Vermont woods and you don't need a beacon in the Vermont woods and go to the notch and you 100% need a beacon. Yeah. But I just, you know, got lazy or. It's generally true except for like the notch and. I don't know, one or two other places. Are there any other places in Vermont that are kind of like similarly? The only place I could think of would be like the cut at J, Big right. J. You could make an argument that that could slide, but you could also make an argument that a beacon's not going to help you because you're just going to get pulled through trees if it does slide. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's stuff that's deep enough to slide, but there's small slopes. And again, it's like, you're probably not going to get buried. You're probably going to get dragged through trees. So I think pretty much in Vermont, the notch is the only place I know of that you really want one. Um, at least a, a green, yellow, red, just something simple that just reminds people that like when it's red, Oh wow. It's red. Totally. Like just giving everybody that extra thought before they go up there. Because I think so much of the audience just gets in the, I'm in Vermont. There's no avalanches in Vermont mindset. And in that one zone, yeah, 
they happen all the time. Honestly, yeah, there's probably like a ton of days people are back there are probably yellow. I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of days. It's and probably about ten are red. There's probably about thirty-five, forty yellow days, ten red days, and the rest of the time it's not at all. And it wouldn't have taken us much thinking to realize that it was a red day. I mean, we just weren't thinking about it. Um, it was just like, yeah, it's Vermont. Yeah, let's go. Let's take the lift up. Bunch of buddies. I mean, so. Two of us were kind of thinking about it, had spent some time out west, and we were thinking about it as like, you know, we're going to the backcountry. And the other two had never spent any time, any long amounts of time skiing out west. And for them, it was like slack country skiing the bench or whatever. Right. I mean, that's how they were thinking about this day, um, which totally wasn't. I mean, we were skiing a thousand foot couloir. Like, <laughs> that's not, it's not just skiing through the woods in Vermont. Well, the avalanches are going to happen, and the best ones, I guess, are the ones where people don't get hurt and people can learn from it. So at least it fits into that category. Totally. And we got super lucky. There's a 100-foot cliff in the middle of the run. My buddy had gotten caught. could have been really bad. There were strainers that he could have gotten dragged through. And um, No, we got super, super lucky and totally a learning experience. And um, you kind of asked if I wanted to talk about it, and I am always happy to talk about the mistakes I make because I think – Everybody makes them, and when you don't talk about them, it just doesn't give the opportunity for other people to learn from your mistakes. Yep, valuable lesson. Yeah. What is Waterbury and Stowe? What is this area missing? And what's hard is that all the backcountry here is somewhat illegal, basically, or at least it has roots in in illegal trimming. And it's like a very, very gray area, obviously, and like it's some of it's logged, so it's not really, but like, and it's the same with mountain biking, honestly. Yeah. Mountain biking is just way ahead of backcountry skiing in Vermont. Uh, but I do think there's there is a place for an organization in the Stowe, like a, a more local organization in the Stowe Waterbury area, Stowe Waterbury area that's focusing on like what what is backcountry skiing going to look like in ten years here. Well, I mean, is that basically the I don't want to say the future of, but like Wada's other half? We basically need a winter Wada. I would love that. Right. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I do think it'd be cool. I think the problem is, though, is that it's it's nobody really wants to take it on because you're basically admitting that all this has been going on illegally. If you try to make a lot of under the radar things legal, you might make them accidentally illegal. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And and everybody knows it and doesn't talk about it, which is, is like, I get it. I totally get it. And like, that's the ethic in Vermont is to like, Everybody's got their backyard run. I mean, maybe it'll go through the same kind of process that basically uphill skinning on ski resorts went through. For a while, it went on. No one talked about it. And then resorts are like, what's going on? We got to deal with it because it's an issue and people are going everywhere. And so then they banned it. And then everybody went, what the hell? You banned it. And then they started welcoming it because, you know, it, it can turn into some revenue. And it's better to be controlled and managed rather than just free for all or angry. You know, maybe the economic development piece i think that has turned a lot of people's eyes onto mountain biking um could apply on the backcountry skiing side in a very similar way i mean i think you know whatever zach and angus have blazed the trail with rasta have done you know is repeatable and is being repeated in little pockets they got the northeast guys um stuff in southern vermont but like it is kind of uncanny that our little region here from mad river valley stowe quadrant you know hasn't been able to recreate that i think a lot of people understandably aren't super excited about that they don't want their zone being blown up i think it's also the nature of 
where your resorts are and where your resorts aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in an area that is in kind of a dark zone of resorts. You got Middlebury College Snowball, and that's it. And you have a lot of you don't have a lot of development. Yep. Um, whereas here, there's more development. The big resorts. Mm-hmm. You know, Bolton already trying to turn backcountry into a product and think, doing decent with it. Yeah, I think Bolton's got the right idea. I yeah. think they're gonna do really well in the next few years with this. But, but I also don't know how to, how to do it because. Well, you just, yeah, you, listen, you don't need to put this on your shoulders. You need to get back into the 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 traffic of life. Right. Welcome back. <laughs> I am, I don't know, honored on behalf of Waterbury that like you went all around the world and, and did all this amazing kind of like willpower slash endurance accomplishments and then decided, okay, I'm done with that. I think I'm going to move to Waterbury. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that's like a feather in the cap for us here on Route 100 and Route 2. So locally, obviously you're skiing mostly backcountry. You don't have a season pass, right? You wouldn't even consider buying. Last year I got one. Okay. Because here you kind of need to like hedge your bets a little bit. If, yeah. But I just like wasn't enjoying it enough and not using it enough. So. What are the other things that you're scratching the itch with around here? Mountain biking this year. Oh my God. Yeah. I just have gotten so into it. It's just, it's amazing. Three places people are likely to run into you out in town grabbing a bite. Probably the res. Or maybe Zen Barn. I don't go out to eat that much. I'm still stuck on being cheap. You miss anything about that lifestyle? Now that you're kind of like back in the quote unquote grind or whatever, having feet in both sides, what do you miss about it? What are you glad to be done with? I'll answer that the opposite. Yeah. What did I love about it and what do I love about now? <laughs> um, so things that I loved about it was like just the simplicity and just waking up every day knowing that you're going skiing. Like you only have one thing. Yeah. You also happen to really, really like that thing, which is nice. The things that I'm really happy to have now, though, and I'm happy to sacrifice that for, is being in a place where I have like a little more balance, and I'm constantly working on that, and I'm still biking too much for what my other goals in life are, um, and I'm sure I'll be skiing too much come winter, but being able to have other goals, like looking at buying a house eventually and trying to to date and eventually have a family and those kinds of things is like very, very happy to be able to do that and have the time for that. Are you going to be able to live without putting another big hairy goal in front of yourself? Uh, we'll see. I think my goals are not going to be physical. Yeah. Hopefully I'll find, find something, but it's nice right now. Not having like just being able to, to live and not have a goal. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Well, if you uh, if you miss the uh, the dawn patrol and you want some noon powder, you can come come up here up the hill, just up up the street from from Waterbury Center. Aaron Rice, thanks a lot for coming by and being on the pod. Thank you so much. And it's rant time. Swimming pools. I know you're out there. If there's a hotel or health club that will sell me a local's midweek-only pass to their indoor pool, I'd pay for it. How much? I don't know. $80 per month for a winter-long family pass? I haven't found this, but maybe it exists. Anyone? Bueller? It's going to get dark at 4. Help us parents with medium-sized kids get them some romp time, and we'll give you some midweek revenue for not really doing anything. End of rant.
holy mackerel. Mr. Rice is one chill dude with a big motor and a positive outlook. I should probably just start eating what he eats. That goes for all of us. Up next on the pod will either be a Mad River Valley local. I have been pestering a few of them, but only if I can ever convince them to travel to the faraway land of Exit 10. Or feel free to nominate yourself. If not, I have an interview with a tourist lined up to keep the feed popping. Long term, I hope to maintain a one to two episodes per month pipeline. If you live or work or play or just visit the Mad River Valley to Stowe Corridor, hit me up to get on the list. In the meantime, I always appreciate those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you leave one, I owe you a beer if I see you in the wild. It's a decent deal for you. Follow on social because it rules the species now, and tell a buddy about the pod if they partake in such things. For those longtime listeners that have been with me since the VPR days, thanks. Hopefully you're as excited about this new future as I am. And if you're cruising by on Route 100, don't be a stranger. Goodbye. I didn't buy anything. Like I looked at my credit card statements from that time period and it was like I had seven purchases a month.